0: We always took it as our as our responsibility to meet the needs of the people who decided to play our games the way they were written yeah. rather than the needs of the people who decided not to play our games as they were written. And so right. we always that the the people who would who would follow the rules were, were always our first audience. And so writing the rules to be followed came from that.
1: When you discuss what has been happening and trends in role-playing games over the last 5, 10, 15 years. One thing that demands to be part of that discussion is Apocalypse World. McGay and Vincent Baker put together a role-playing game that, for many, changed how games were played. From Apocalypse World, we get Monster Hearts, Dungeon World, Monster of the Week, and so many other games. In many ways, we can find the DNA of Apocalypse World in many games that aren't even labeled Powered by the Apocalypse. I sat down with McGay and Vincent Baker, and we talk about where the idea came from. When did they think playbooks would be a thing? Where'd the concept of moves come from? We discuss their influences. We discuss what they have influenced. And overall, we just have a really pleasant conversation over two hours. I will tell you we had some audio challenges, so the audio quality of this interview is not as great as I like. Boy oh boy, it's worth enduring. McGay and Vincent were incredibly generous. They held nothing back. So I'd like you to sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with the Bakers. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rulebooks, plastic models, dice. And cards in hand, let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor. And the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we have two trailblazers of the role playing industry, McGay and Vincent Baker. They themselves changed the entire landscape of role playing when they published the famous Apocalypse World back in 2010. Now, McGay and Vincent, uh, welcome to the third floor. Thank you. Thank it's you great for to be us. here. Yay, we made it all the way. <laughs> two flights of steps, yay. <laughs> so I guess, um, and it's, this is interesting. So this is my first time interviewing a couple. Um, I've had two guests, but not two guests that have spent a majority of their life together. Yeah. And you know, so normally at this point in the you know, very beginning, I want to find out, how did you find out about gaming and things like that? Um, but I guess, what did you find first, each other or gaming? Um. Uh, I started
2: playing D&D in 1978 when I was seven years old. No so kidding. That was the start. And um, I met... Long before me. Yeah. And, um, and then I moved across country. And it took me a year to find new game folks. I was... So, seventh grade. And then it took me a, another move across country. And um, that's where we met.
1: In college... Yes. So let's focus on you finding d at seven years old. How does that happen?
2: Um, my neighbor, Jenny, her older brother was given the red box basic set as a um, birthday present or something. And he was, let's see, Jenny was 10. So Aaron would have been 14. And it just didn't click with him. And Jenny was like, this is a thing that we will now play for the next <laughs> And so for my my first gaming group was, Jenny was 10, her younger brother, Jono was nine, I was seven, my sister was five, and we played practically every day until I moved to California when I was 13.
0: No kidding.
2: Yeah.
1: So... I mean, it's not like just picking up Monopoly, right? It's it, it's a whole new way of gaming. It's and there's really nothing to learn from. How did you guys like wade through and kind of figure it out, or did you just kind of do what you did?
2: Um, I actually think that it's a lot like what we do anyway as kids. You know, we're already steeped in storytelling and playing pretend and make believe, and have it. And if if you want to just lay a little bit of extra rules on top of it. It's not actually that big a leap. And we all were already well steeped in a lot of the source material. Um, all, the, all the whole fairy tale genre, all of right. uh, Tolkien, all of the um, Lloyd Alexander books, all of that sort of thing, Madeline Langle books, all the th- sort of stuff that we had either those of us who could read were reading or had read to us by our parents um so we were you know we were psyched we were ready and it was it was not a problem and then star wars came out of course and we were like oh my right. god we can do this in star wars <laughs> <laughs> and so so jenny made a whole her whole own thing of like just porting it over when she was like 12 or something so by the time unbelievable it was, yeah so that was that was a thing and then i played a lot of macros robotech Macross, and all yeah. things like that in high school and D in high school and then yeah so for me that's one of the foundational pieces of my game design is that that sort of play is our not even necessarily our human but our primate perhaps our mammalian birthright that sort yeah. of play and find out and vincent's like oh, why not reptiles?
0: Um, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, you should ask the crows what they Yeah, do.
2: right? So um, I think that there is an understanding, especially as we come to adulthood and we want more, um, more uh, affordances and constraints, more structure, more intensity of like, how do I do this thing on it? And our lives get more complex too, so it makes yeah. sense. Um, but if we could do more remembering that... We, we got this. We know how to do this. We know absolutely how to say, okay, so you're a wizard and and I'm a wizard and that's a dragon and let's, oh no, you know, we know, we know how to do that.
1: Yeah, no, it's very, very true. I actually, um, I had two uh, uh, experts on adult play on the show um, a little while back and it was fascinating to hear them say very similar to what you said, which is, It's not playing that's unnatural. If you go even to the animal kingdom and look at how the animal kingdom learns, you know, very important skills, it's all through play. And it was very, very fascinating uh, to hear that. So I'd be curious, then, again, when you. So you had your play group, right, until you're like 13 years old and then you move and you start playing with a new group, right? You start how different. How different was the experience in the game? Did it change a lot or? <laughs> oh, okay. So I moved from rural upstate New York. Like
2: really where in upstate weird. New York. Um, do you know where Oniana is?
1: I do. I do. I'm do from where, outside of Syracuse. Okay.
2: So do you know where like Norwich and Morris are?
1: I've never been, but I
2: know where they are. Okay. So um, oniana is Morris is to Oniana as my hometown is to Morris. Okay. And there are. Around 400 people in town and yep. there have been for the last 100 years. Whatever. You can draw <laughs> the whole thing on a napkin. Um, and I moved from there to San Diego. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. In the in eighty, in the middle of the 80s um, to go to middle school, which was culture shock like you would not oh, believe.
1: Can't even imagine.
2: So it wasn't necessarily the gaming. Like it took me a little while to find a gaming group, but it wasn't. You know, There was so much else around it that was culture shock. And then you had, like, shortly after that, the very beginnings of Vampire the Masquerade and other things that created massive ripples through. And by that time, there was Shadowrun, and there was Cyberpunk, and there was Talis Lanta, and there was all this other stuff going on. So it wasn't just d and And then right. um, the girl who was my primary uh, DM for the Macross campaign was a senior in high school when I was a freshman. And then after she graduated that group continued on playing stuff
1: very cool all right so now we're going to move over to vincent so vincent did you were you before seven or did she beat you out
0: <laughs> she beat me out by like a
1: year okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> my my uncle when i was around 8 um got into zork on on the computer wow and now i'm uh, old enough to know zork <laughs> we uh um uh, my youngest uncles are about the same age as me. My mom's youngest brothers. And um, we used to, when we couldn't use the computer, we used to pretend Zork, and I would be the computer. And uh, so so this is me at eight and nine. Um, I, I made my uncle write out his commands, and then I would write the answer and get it back to it. That, that lasted That's for half an hour or something before he was like, would you just listen to me? <laughs>
1: Shut up! We don't talk. I have a computer. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I never played Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe once in high school, like one session. Yeah, in high school, but I never played really? Dungeons and Dragons until uh, two thousand and eight. I want to no, say two thousand
2: and seven.
1: Oh, oh, that's right. We we did play Dungeons and Dragons together in college. That's in, right. In
2: 1990.
1: 1990. yeah. yeah. So did so if Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, that's supposed to be everybody's first role playing game. What was your first formal role playing game then? Like that had rules. That wasn't two two people writing pieces of paper about pretending to be computers. Which is
2: pretty cool, and like it is really cool. How close is that to Wizard's Grimoire, really?
0: <laughs> well, don't don't ask that. I'll, okay, that's <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Spoiler. Tell us <laughs> um. Could have been... No, no, I played... For uh, Chill? The the first real character I ever made was for Twilight 2000. Mm-hmm. Nice. It would have been 88 uh, or 89, but we didn't play that. Um, my friends were fighting about Twilight 2000 and we made characters and then didn't
1: play. Um, we played <laughs> a that, that, ta- that tale has been mur- told many a time. <laughs> yeah, right?
2: That's that's like the classic thing. Our Our, our youngest just there's experiences that they have as a 15 year old that you know are so different because they just have this experience of growing up where you play games and it just goes as opposed to all as the three of us who like most of the time you make a character and that's it and you're like yeah this is gonna be cool blah
0: yeah yeah anyway, it, I think it, the first again. Oh, go ahead.
1: Well and it's also it's also a generational piece to that too which is something that I've really have been learning a lot as I've been doing a lot of these interviews is that our generation is kind of the first generation to hand over. Yeah. You know officially because the generation before us may have come up with role playing. But there was like five of them, right? right. <laughs> we were kind of the first generation that that adopted role playing at, at, a, at a bigger group. And, um, you know, one of the things that I often talk about is like I ask the question, um, you know, wh- why is role playing bigger now than it's ever been before? Like, what the hell happened? And one of the theories that I keep hearing is, as well. It's been handed down, yeah, and yeah, and we we multiplied, yeah. we multiplied, and we run Apple and Microsoft. <laughs> I,
2: think, I think that there's a couple other factors, and one of them is that it it had to take long enough for a, a full rotation from um the the people above us. Who yep, were like had a whole different way of doing things, really, and then we grew up with. So much of the media about like Dungeons Dragons was the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Like I, in the eighties in Southern California in the middle of the Satanic Panic, it was a, a real time, and then everything else around that, and then like the the stereotypes of like how geeky and nerdy and awful and whatever. Yep. And it's taken us culturally a long time to get through that and come back around to oh, you know what? Storytelling is cool, actually. Um, and then there's the internet. That's the yep. other major thing. I was talking with uh, one of our designer friends in Korea recently about, because the uh, tabletop role-playing game scene in Korea is considerably younger than in the U.S. Interesting. And it basically, in the format that we would recognize it, like I, I, will, I will stand here and bang my fist on the table that they have a indigenous culture of playing games and figuring things out as as humans but a lot of it got imported with the internet right and so that was a similar conversation like what happened how did i'm like the internet arrived right and when it was jenny and jono and serena and i we were the only four kids in our whole town in and in our school that we knew of which was probably false there were probably right. other kids around, but we didn't know them. We had no way to connect
1: them. Exactly. We
2: couldn't afford the books necessarily. There's a whole nope. barriers in many, many ways. And then the internet arrives and suddenly everybody can find each other, even if it's just like Alt. whatever it was on BBSs yeah, in the, the old,
1: 90s. Yeah, the old BBSs, yeah. No, it's, that's very, very true. And and the ability to acquire knowledge, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, I remember and I would imagine you two having to hunt down like game books and yeah. you know figure out and you know and you would find somebody else to play and you were like well how do you play and yeah. you know now it's just like type 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 and i can watch 50 people play the game you yeah. know so it's yeah. amazing yeah so um so D wasn't your first introduction vincent so um what do you consider kind of like your first like big what was the first big role playing game for you
0: um the first the first one i was thinking about it the first one we played many times in a row was Shadowrun. run yeah 88 89 yeah and um but I picked up a big stack of Dragon magazine back issues at a uh, tag sale when I was 16 or something, and that was that was all I knew of D D. That was my well, no, I mean we had the cartoon and we had the Satanic Panic, and yeah. my friend Jeff's older brother played D D. Like it yeah. wasn't all I knew, but that was my exposure to the the guts of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Those magazines were great.
1: It. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, rem- I remember going to Walden Books and buying right? Dragon Magazine. Walden
2: Books! I remember going to Walden Books and, like, you know, it was definitely... It, there was not that sort of money for me as a kid, absolutely. But, you know, you could go to Walden Books and look. Mm-hmm. And that was
1: cool. That so. was very cool. I remember buying... Uh, See, I bought my red box at Walden Books, and I think I bought GURPS at Walden Books. Um, and those were my biggies growing up, were, yeah. were, you know, the red box and GURPS. So you guys are now in college. And is that when Vincent meets McGay? Oh, or? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: I was a year ahead of Vincent in school, and um, I met him on his first day there. Yep. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah.
1: And where was this? Uh, at yeah, Hampshire. Hampshire College oh, okay.
2: in um, Amherst, Massachusetts.
1: Yep. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. Um, and not this is not a love story podcast, but was it uh, you guys figured it out pretty quick or it took a little while yes. or
2: no it was like it was
0: 45 minutes maybe. Yeah.
2: I'm not <laughs> even kidding. Awesome. It was it was it was like oh, but and this was September 9th of nineteen ninety. And then Esther, our dear, dear friend Esther Clinton, lived down the hall from Vincent, and the three of us we're practically inseparable for two months, like a month and a half. Yeah,
0: months. something like that. Like, wow.
2: so I'm I'm there, and I'm all excited about meeting incoming students and showing them how to get their dining hall pass and where the laundry is and how the buses work and things like that. And you know, I met Vincent, and that was amazing. And Esther's room across the hall or down the hall was already like entirely set, calm, beautiful, hand drawn picture of the the white tree and i'm like we're just gonna be friends and um was, anyway so we spent a, a six weeks or so both of us telling her how cool we thought the other one was and she finally sat us down in my room and said look i i am here if i'm in college and I have papers to write so sort
1: this <laughs> figure this right. out <laughs> that's yeah. amazing now was there a common love of gaming was that part of the conversation that drew you to each oh, other
2: yeah. no, i mean oh, yeah. um i don't i mean i think we would have overcome that but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was definitely part of the scene yeah absolutely were we already playing games together or yeah. it must have been yeah, yeah. Was it Ars magica um, was that Chris's... Um, we played
0: We played Cyberpunk first. And Cyberpunk. We oh played... God, first we played D&D, it. and then we played Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk, and then we played Ars Magica. That's we cyber played it. Cyberpunk for six yeah, months yeah, yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. and then Ars Magica for years
1: and years and years and years and decades.
2: We had a decade-long game, the two of us and Emily Care Boss, which I wow. still think of fondly.
1: Yeah. It's amazing how uh, how RPG burns just memories into you and and moments and sessions that you can remember. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that I've always said is very unique about it. So I'd be curious for the two of you, has role playing games always been the prominent form of gaming for you? Or did you do a lot of board gaming, card games, things like that? Or was it always just pretty much RPGs?
2: In terms of, like, together or before or life in general? or Sure.
1: <laughs> my family played a
0: ton of games. Masses. We, we yeah. always played games. Um, always, always, always. And then uh, as my parents' health declined, um, my little brother started designing more and more games custom for their needs. needs. Yeah. Um, Interesting. <laughs> well, okay, so it started with my dad he decided he didn't care about winning and losing. So he would play with his cards all showing all the time anyway. And that really frustrated my little brother who really liked rules and trying to win and stuff. So he would design games that could accommodate that. Cool. Um,
2: You could say Hiram Baker. Hiram Baker. Who is a really excellent card game designer. And like a a couple of his games are out there. You need to go find them.
0: They're wonderful. Yeah. um, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He's a really sharp designer, but he he spent he's spent so much energy really custom designing games for your mom.
0: Yeah, um, my mom had dementia, um, and so he was designing games in track with her with her progression through the disease that she could still play and that would help her. That were you know would, were um, mental and emotional practice
1: for her. that's him. incredible. That's, uh, incredible.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's in a, it's really amazing. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and and it gets to our point about the importance of play. And and how obviously important that was uh f- for her and for him uh to feel like he could provide, right? And and yeah. and offer yeah. some comfort and uh some escape as well. That's amazing. Um yeah. so when did the two of you either together or separately first start dabbling with I want to let's make some changes to this or let's let's try something new or like when did that when did you, when Star did you transition?
2: Wars came
0: out in <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: I mean for me it was Zork <laughs> yeah,
0: true true yeah um, um I, you know when I when I say if I may when yeah. I say that I didn't play a game until Shadowrun in 88 or 89 that's because I was running my own games uh through middle school and and early high school um and you know they weren't Good, but but it started with it started with design for me.
2: Well, uh, let's backtrack one second because one of the things that's interesting about Hiram's work with your mom is that your mom was a game designer her entire life in raising your kids. No, that's true. Because Via homeschooled most of Vincent's siblings at various stages and made probably thousands of customized teaching games of all kinds to meet each child where they were. And you know, give them yep. support yep. in that way, in a way that was engaging and fun. Most with Hiram, because games were his uh, one of his main ways of learning things. And so, yeah. a really nice parallel. So, um, the the piece where you're designing things all the time as a kid, and you're like, "Oh, they weren't good," but they were also, you got to do that part first.
0: Oh
1: yeah. You know? Yeah. So so what what do you think drove that for you then, Vincent? Like what what made you say, Okay, I know there's rules already out there, but I want to do this on my own, my own way and run my own games as early as high school like that? I mean, what do you think was the driver on that?
0: Well, I mean, since you asked, part of it was poverty. Yeah.
1: Um yeah? I didn't yeah. I didn't buy a game book until I had
0: birthday money when I was seventeen or something. Um uh you know, I found I found a stack of Dragon magazines for fifty cents and, and that was what I could work with.
2: Yeah. And like similarly, I I never I don't think I ever had my own even my own D and D books until I I am quite sure that I was in college. Um they were always like Jenny and John the Jenny's older siblings or our GMs in you know, my two different GMs that I had in um high school and then in in college there was like the club that had its own library which was good and then other people had their game books but i think <sighs> i'm trying to think of, it was probably as an Ars Magica book which was the first thing i bought wow that i remember buying could be um yeah I know I never bought any of the the like Vampire in the Masquerade and all of those those all belong to my friends.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So the transition was a little bit different then and and let's start with you Vincent. So you go from you know, out of necessity, creating your own games, piecing them together from, from these magazines and relics and, you know, things in your head to sitting down and playing Shadowrun and Shadowrun has a book and it has rules. And was that, were you like, yeah, no, we're going to change this. Or did you, was it nice to play a game that was already designed? Um, well,
0: the, the transition that happened at the same time is that I was a player instead of the GM, right? Uh, and so sitting down to play Shadowrun with my friends was was in a lot of ways really different um, than running um, my own game for different friends. Um, we moved at, at that time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it was my turn to, to run a game in that group and we ran Taloslanta, I said, OK, we're going to play Taloslanta and here's the sheet full of differences that we're going to play with, you know. Um, I, I like this magic system that I made up better and everybody's like, oh, actually that is better. And I'm like, yeah, I know I, I made it better on purpose, you know. Um, but so, uh, I am not positive I ever ran a game straight until the forge. Even when we, when I ran cyberpunk, I, I swiped a bunch from Shadowrun. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I I ran straight Shadowrun. My friends insisted on that.
1: That's right. <laughs> but but the desire it sounds like the, for both of you the desire was always there, right? To 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 make it your own, to to make some changes to see what you obviously thought were improvements because you went with it um as opposed to just straight out of the box. Is that fair? I,
2: I wouldn't necessarily desire is an interesting word because for me um there was always more of a, a, why would you not? You're making up everything Everything else. I didn't ever, I never felt as though I was not allowed to.
0: Right. If, right.
2: You know, it was never of like, oh, I wish I could. It was like, well, how about this? You know? And if I was, were, if there was a GM, I always felt comfortable. And I'm extremely fortunate in that. I always felt comfortable saying, what about this? Hmm. Do you, this this would be kind of cool. Always felt comfortable. And like, there was the time in high school when we were playing D&D and we were all goofing off like mad and as any group will and um, John was just, our DM was just like, Fed up with us, and so somebody said, "Fine, I grab it." And you know, there was a, this big staff in the middle of room. I'm like, "Cool, I'm, I'm just going to grab it." And he's like, "Okay," the ceiling starts falling. And we're like, oh god!
1: <laughs> but I don't like consequences. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. Um, so I think the desire to to design was there, but also it's the it's the the idea that you could. Um, and I think that that is a, one of the things that comes out of our background are our, you know, things that we both the, share is the, the, the commonality yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of you figure it out you know what can you do? Um, and it's so easy to to, to to miss that um and we were both lucky to have through all of whatever we had somehow we got the the, the gift also of well what can you do what what do you want to do and sit around and tell stories that's free um and and then it is a thing of like wanting something a little bit more That's like like the magic system that you brought in you know that you were just saying like i like this a little better and for me it was um the game with uh, the Ars magica game with emily when we were thinking of like what about this doesn't quite do what we want to do. How, how do we, how about these yeah. other, how about this other dice system, which is the other kind of dice, which shows up in Um, um That was kind of the first concentrated, let's work together to make something different that we're going to, that, can, that we're going to implement and use in a reliable way, as opposed to so much of the earlier stuff that I did in terms of
1: you know, it was more spontaneous. Like, what if it happened like this instead? So, so I'd be curious was, is this a, I'm trying to think of the way to phrase this. If I mess this up, yell at me, the, this desire to tinker or, or the, or the, or not feeling the need to get permission to tinker. Like it, it was instinctual and, and just obvious for you, the two of you. Does that happen outside of gaming too? Do you, you know, want, want to fix cars or is there another part of your life where you see the same, Pattern, yeah. yes,
2: yes, for me. I mean, Tell me. I would. Okay, so cars in specific, right? I I like cars. Um, I grew up around cars and trains and big, like big engines and stuff. But um, the, the the moment of intersection is when we needed to patch the uh, a hole in the uh, body of the car in order for it to pass inspection, <laughs> and I was like, well. I have never done body work on a car, but there, I, I guess I have to. It's that thing I was, like, yeah. I mean, we have to, we can't right. afford
0: to figure it out. Do? And then
2: Gideon told me, <laughs> I'll just go get like some Bondo and some fiberglass cloth. And I'm like, it has the word cloth, therefore I am able to do it. Um, And it's like the thing we say to our kids over and over, like the instructions are on the box. The world wants you to know how to do things. Yeah. So why not? And I think something that has really grown with time is the it's like the say yes or roll dice sort of thing. You know, if someone says, can you help me fix this antique thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if I can't, I will be honest and know where the limits of my ability are. Yep.
0: If, if you don't know, Meg is a textile historian and a preservationist.
2: Conservationist. Conservationist.
0: Yes. There we go. So um, like that's
1: that's what she does, right? Um, I work. I which is a af- lot of overlap, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah. I like to say I meddle. In, I meddle in the affairs of the dead for the benefit of the living, um, which <laughs> is true. Um, but yeah, the thing about like store how we tell stories, why yeah, we yeah. tell stories, where they connect to other aspects of our lives, um, what makes an I, what makes some an event meaningful. Um, is very very much interwoven
0: yeah. with, as well as who history. gets to tell stories and what stories they get to do. tell. Oh, very
1: interesting. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing. A whole thing.
2: one of the things that's really interesting for me personally is being part of. Um, I work with small local history museums in Western Massachusetts, um, a whole bunch of them, uh, and uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me about that work is. Helping little museums deal with Nagpra issues—the laws, regar- laws regarding uh, Native and Indigenous uh, um, artifacts, right—and uh, there's laws around that, and a lot of little organizations have no idea how to interface with that, are terrified of the whole prospect, stymied entirely, and I'm like, just. It's on the box. They want you to know how to do this.
1: They wrote it down.
2: They wrote it down. That's funny. So, but that ties in directly to the thing of, like, who tells the story? What is the story? There's always more to the story. And I feel like the same is true with role-playing. You know, there's always new ways you can look at that angle. So,
1: The Insider Insights series allows me to talk to developers, designers, artists, writers, and industry insiders about the creative process and how they approach their work. Um, and today, what we're going to do is kind of walk through this process with uh, both McGay and Vincent and try to learn how, you know, we've stopped here for a second, right? We see the beginnings of it. Let's go to the next steps. So when we get back from this break, I want to talk to them about some of their earliest published materials. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use Mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats. Save yourself some money and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So now that we understand, you know, the type of people that the bakers are, um let's talk a little bit about what you consider kind of your your earliest creations. Um not necessarily your change in the Ars Magica magic system, right, which was consumed by four people, but stuff that you actually put out there, um that people started to consume. What 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 do you what do the two of you consider kind of your first works that were significant for you?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, my first was in two thousand and one, and it was called Kill Puppies for Satan.
1: <laughs> I've was, heard of it. Uh, you've
0: heard of it. Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, I forgot to ask. Do we do we swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah do it's we fine. Not yeah. Swear? yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So um, that was my fuck you to gaming. I was never going to design a game um, after Kill Puppies for Satan, and
1: uh, <laughs> that was your big moment, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. That that was it. So I never did. No. Um,
1: <laughs> so, it was a great episode, guys. I appreciate you coming. Out.
0: <laughs> I, I, uh, the new Ars Magica came out. It was Ars Magica third edition, which was the White Wolf Ars Magica. Right. And, oh, we were just out of, no. This no, was, can I tell the story? I have years. to tell the story. Wait, no, I'm, I'm going to tell part of the other okay. part of the story. Uh, All
2: right.
0: Uh, the, uh. I knew I would hate it. The, the new Ars Magica Interesting. Um, knew I would hate it. Uh, I had been lurking on the email list that had been developing it. And I, I, I mean, who, am, who am I? Right. Like I disagreed with the direction they were going, but I'm, I'm just a fan at that point. Right. Like I don't have any grounds to disagree. All I can do is not buy their book. So, um, I knew it was going to cost 60 bucks. So that was the, the annual budget for the for role playing games that yeah. year. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to make Kill Puppies for Satan and see how far 60 bucks takes me. And I printed it at work and I bound it at the copy shop and I abandoned it on. I literally abandoned a couple of copies on the doorstep of um, the game store in town.
2: Never to be heard oh, yeah, no, of again.
0: Yeah. But I I mailed a copy to Jonathan Tweed, a couple other designers, as a love letter because I was a big Ars Magic fan. He had designed Ars Magic. Um, and I said, take this as fan mail. And I, I mailed him a copy. And he wrote me back. Wow. Um, and that was, that was a big moment in my, <laughs> in turning it away from a fuck you to game design forever into a, a thing I might actually do.
1: Um, so what did he say when he wrote back? What was the reply?
0: He said that uh, when he opened it, he didn't expect every sentence to actually be a sentence and every paragraph to actually be a paragraph. <laughs> That's
2: what he <laughs> said. <laughs> it was yes,
1: <laughs> he said this is hilarious. This is actually, and really well written. Yeah. Interesting. Said. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So now He's I said I'm not sure about the game design, and I said, "Well, it's not meant to be played. It's called Kill Puppies <laughs> for Satan. What the hell?" John, now, me. when you say it was the fu fu to gaming, um like what what exactly did you mean? Like I'm just going to put out this game that's really not a game, or or was it the uh, anti game? No, or
2: had, once, had, had Hole come out? Buttery Wholesomeness and Human oh, Occupied I One. I, I think, think Human Occupied Landfill came out before.
1: I have no, um,
0: no. That's a title,
2: isn't it? Do you not know it? No. Oh my goodness! Oh, look that one up. It's Definitely do book. find it. That was that was an early. Well, I'll I'll, I'll I do Google not remember. I'll Google it. Remember. We can but, find so, out. So we um, the
0: No, it was it was my fuck you to to being a game designer. It was my um I had signed up to play test a game, you know, and and received the play test materials for this game that it was like a mid tier company that is no longer with us. Oh wow!
2: Yeah. I
0: knew. Hole was 100 years before Kill for, for Satan. <laughs> it came out, came out in 95. <laughs> Kill Puppies for Satan wasn't until 2001. But, um... And this this game, you were modern-day monster hunters in, in the year 2000, and it was horrible. It was systemically terrible, and it was morally bankrupt. Um, Interesting. The, the line that, that got me was, um even though trolls are sentient they're an endangered species so you can't kill them with impunity and i was like what i yeah. was like it is that's time for me to write kill puppies for saving. Yeah, if we're if we're if the field is inviting this kind of so i was i was pissed off at, yeah. Um, yeah and i knew that ours magic was going to be terrible and it it really seemed like the field of oh, and this is before Google. This is before yep, yep. PayPal. This is before PDFs. Lulu. This is before PDFs. The only route was was to be published. There was no self publishing or, or large, very, very yeah. limited self publishing. Um, certainly, I didn't have access to anything beyond printing it at work and mm-hmm. taking it to the copy shop to be to be stapled or whatever. Yep. Um, and so. It really seemed like like I had wanted to design games professionally for a decade or something at that point and, since I um, met
2: you when you were nineteen yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> 18.
0: but so um, so it really seemed impossible it really seemed like like I would not be able to do what I wanted to do in role-playing game design.
1: Um, and was that, I mean, do, do, was the message, like, I'm just going to throw my hands up, this industry is not for me, even though I know I'd be, like, yeah. I, I'm trying to get a sense of what the message was. But there's
2: it, there's another piece. Uh, there is an important another piece with with, pup, with with Kill Puppies for Satan that ties into this feeling you had, which was that we had just had a new baby, that our oldest was three and a half, and our new baby was new. Yeah. Um, and so... Without any of the tools that we now enjoy of the Internet and PDFs and PayPal and, you know, Patreon and Kickstarter and Lulu and, you know, uh, Indie Press Revolution and uh, any one of a billion things. Yep. Like, I think part of it was that you're like, I'm, fuck you. You know, I have two little kids. Right. And I have a, I have to... Yeah.
0: And also I have 60 bucks. How far can right. I take 60 bucks? Yeah. Right. Um, no, there was definitely a, not, not a, you know, fuck you. I'm gone and fuck you. Here I am. Fuck you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you were, would it be fair to say you, you felt, felt deterred, deterred by, by the structural? That's a very, Absolutely.
2: very good and succinct way of putting it.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so what happens next then? So then, I uh,
0: this new this new Google thing happens. Magic. And I type into Google free RPGs because I figured I couldn't be the only one. And I wound up this would have been two thousand and one, two thousand and two. Yeah. I wound up at the Forge, which was a just a web forum um, uh, of people who were making independent role playing games in the, the very beginnings of that. Um, yep. And I said, hi, I have some cranky ideas, which I did and still do. And I think, I think there's a lot of nonsense that gets called
1: rules in these games. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you give me an idea what, what that means, Vincent? Like, well, yeah, give yeah, me yeah. an example of what you think is nonsense or what, at that time what you thought was nonsense.
0: So, um... And this, like uh, me and Meg and our friend Emily, Emily Care Boss, um, who published the romance trilogy, you might know uh, her, some of her games. Um, the um, we had been playing Ars Magica co gming for a while so good and
2: so good thank you ours Magico, for bringing troop style play as a thing we could talk about
0: yeah um we'd been on red games frp advocacy yeah
2: for years uh, by that point yeah since 96 um since 94
0: which was a which was a very early RPG theory um, news group in this case and then when that had moved over we had moved away from that or whatever we weren't Doing that, we continued um, talking about RPG theory pretty intensely. So one of the one of the things that I disagreed strongly with with the new arts Magica. Let me see if I can say this is to to me and to us. If I say as the GM, there's a rustle in the bushes. It's orcs. What has to happen at the table among the human beings who are there playing the game? What has to happen? for it to be true that there's a rustle in the bushes and it's orcs. Um, And the going wisdom at the time was, well, you said it, you're the GM, so it's true. But the exercise is Meg say, wait, orcs out here? And now I have to rethink that. Mm -hmm. So, So my position is, was, and is, that what has to happen for it to be true is that the group has to come to uh to a consensus to an agreement to um everyone has to what's that form of the verb assent that it's true mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so the the power of truth is not in the the speaker but in the listener and um
2: and like one of the things that was really true about that time playing that game with Emily is that you know we had two little kids, and so you and Emily were talking very deeply about game design theory a lot and I was not as much. I mean, (laughs) I was, (laughs) but you know, it's, I I was, I think, I think it's important to recognize Emily's impact on our game design at that point because, uh, you know, she'd come over and she'd play with our oldest kid and um, she'd hang out and talk game theory and, You know, it just was very, very much, I think, I think that Emily and like the people on the forge too, but Emily was someone who would hang out with us at our house, um, helped create a bridge to what could come after.
0: Oh yeah. If, if we hadn't
2: had any local people and like other people, Tony and et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we hadn't had any local people, it was, you know, like,
0: I don't want to say if we hadn't had, because Emily is, um, amazing in her own right
2: yeah but her
0: mind is so so sharp yeah yeah um, she's an amazing uh, role-playing thinker amazing the sum up is that the going wisdom at the time was that the gm spoke with authority if the jam said it was true it was true right and i had seen so many times right well first of all when we hadn't had a jam, but also so many times when somebody says to the jam, wait really works out here right and the jam the goes oh no no you're right you know this that in fact the GM doesn't ever get to unilaterally assert anything. It's always negotiated. And so that was that
1: was not the going wisdom at the Well, I was about to say that must have like you must have turned some heads with those ideas. Well, that was my that plan. That was kind of the
2: plan. i <laughs> like, we were... Like,
0: we I were, certainly yelled a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, um... It's the off-stage games.
2: Off-stage off, off great games. That's, that's later. later. I know it's later, but I, it very much connects to the stuff that we were doing. You know, like, oh, wait, this is true.
0: Yeah, yeah. But so, um... But so that's what the Forge was like. Uh, uh, Kill Puppies for Satan was sort of notorious... Um, and then I followed it up with a, uh, a game that I never completed all the way called Other Kind that um, was very influential uh, at the Forge. And then...
2: Other Kind is where you get the dice pool that then is assigned to, like, like in my game Siren, where you have different, different pieces of the outcome that you draw from a pool, but then, so it, it, it's, that that's what that became.
0: Right. You roll your pool of dice and after you've seen the numbers, you assign them to the parts of the outcome. Like I'll put a six in accomplishing my goal and I'll put a three in not getting hurt and I'll put a one in right. nobody else get hurt, gets hurt. Yeah. Um, and so.
2: And that's something that you, you know, we designed for other kind and then we played, we used that with Emily yeah, in our yeah. magic game.
1: That came out of that ice magic. Yeah. There's, um, there's, there's, and that was a very influential game. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I would imagine. (laughs) So the recognition, Vincent, that it's um, it's a collective effort to design the world. Right. Which which is contrary to wisdom at that easily at that time. And and for many, it still is Um, the idea that that we as a table are going to we're going to tell this tale together. And it's not I'm not putting on a performance as the GM. And, you know, you're doing more than just being a character um, in my world right? So mm-hmm. we're throwing that away. I wonder early on, did you enforce that through this is how games should be played? Or did were you finding yourself creating mechanics to enforce this concept?
0: Yeah, the way we used to do it is we would have a disagreement. And so we would all go away and design games to prove our points.
2: Yeah. And by this, we mean like, Vincent and Emily and Joshua A.C. Newman and um, Ron, Edwards. Ron Edwards and Clinton R. Nixon and Luke yeah. Crane and like <laughs> a whole bunch of people, me. Um, yeah. Um, Matt Wilson. Oh, what's her name? Alan. Her last name is Alan. He's with a J.
0: Oh, no. Who? Shoot.
2: I, it's not going to come to me. She's from the
1: forge. Oh, old anyway, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so like. What was the way that you proved your point then? What, what, when you look back and say, you know, I was right. And and I proved it this way. What did you, what mechanically did you make to prove your point? Do you remember? Well that's an
0: interesting question. Um, n- not that point. No, I don't remember.
1: <laughs> you can ask Emily she may remember. She may. No, I just yelled that one a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in this conversation before we get into the birth of Apocalypse World is I wanted to try to get an understanding of the seeds of yeah. a lot of things, and yeah. I'm already seeing them, right? You know, I, I like one of the things, one of the things that took me when I read Apocalypse World was how prescriptive you were about how a game should be played, which um, is not something that I had seen before, um, and I, I don't know. Um, I mean, now it's, it's it's a lot more common now, but but you know, at the time it wasn't. So this this helps me a lot to help kind of understand that.
2: I have I have a couple. Um, I want to talk about that point.
1: Okay, wait. but
0: I want to I okay, want to fill in some historical okay, stuff, please. which was a, that was pretty common at the forge before apocalypse. Um, quite common at the forge. You know, what I would say now, we never quite said it this way at the forge, but what I would say now is that we always took it as our. As our responsibility to meet the needs of the people who decided to play our games the way they were written, yeah, rather than the needs of the people who decided not to play our games as they were written, and so right. we always right. that the the people who would who would follow the rules were were always our first audience, and
1: so writing the rules to be followed came from that. Um, that makes sense. So you weren't writing it for the other bakers out there who never followed the rules. <laughs>
0: <laughs> by by then, like as soon as you play a game that you can follow the rules and it's great. Yeah, it changed changed my mind about how role playing games could and it should could work. work. Um,
2: I want to talk just for a minute before we move into sort of apocalypse world where. where the majority of my game design was happening at this time. So um, really it's two different places. One is um, I'm a certified sex ed teacher for um, 7th to 12th grade, and I wasn't teaching at the time, but going through that process and understanding the use of games to communicate things of meaning um, to an audience that needed to hear them and engage with them in creative ways that were not, here is a thing you need to know, but what do you think about this? Right. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Here is an idea. Turn it around. Try it on. How would you, what do you think? You know, and so designing games for those situations, playing that sort of games in that situation was definitely part of my game design background. And also from, 1996 through to uh, I guess 2000 and uh, I guess 2010. Um, I was facilitating a group a uh, uh, a counseling group for parents dealing with serious postpartum depression, stress and anxiety. And so that involved a lot of this sort of experiential I mean, you could you could definitely look at it as though it was a game. Like, sure. Here's a, here's an experience we're going to go through that's going to take you a place, and you're going to discover true things about yourself, and you're going to come out the other side feeling buoyed up. Right. Um, and not in like a like oh let's get through the week. It's like we're going to show up, and we're going to talk about how goddamn hard this is. Yeah. Because you don't have any other place where people are willing to listen to you without judgment without um giving you all the ideas like oh here's what you should do but just listen like what's your truth right now yep and those things really powerfully influence um my game design like our game design what i bring to that and and it really hits into your point here about which i feel like and correct me if i'm wrong but part of the point is um Clarity in writing and getting people to do what you need them to do. And how do you create the space for the conversation that you want to take place? How do you drive toward that? Um, Because you can't necessarily, this is not school. We are not here to grade you. We are not, we're not saying you must have this. We're like, here is the space we're making. And you're Mm -hmm. welcome to come be in this space. And if you want to come be in this space, here are the guidelines and you know affordances yeah. and constraints and rules, and here's the dice we're going to use.
1: And you're going to put the instructions on the box. Yeah, and we're going to put
2: the instructions on the box.
0: And, it's on the box. Yeah. And here's what we're offering. Here's what yeah. here's what the promise of this experience is. Yeah. Um,
1: when so when you're having these conversations and battles, I would assume on the forge, right, with some of these ideas, um, what was, what did you find? to be a convincer. So for those, those that were not believers at first, that started to start to go. You know what? Maybe Vincent isn't an idiot. Maybe he has a point here. What what made some of them turn the corner a little bit? And I'm sure there were some that never, yeah. never, yeah, Sure, yeah. but it's always like not, show up with you the game. say that, but I'm not sure they were any.
2: You you show up with the game. The, the I, truth is in the play. I of think... like, here is my point. Here is my idea about how the mechanics could work or how you could structure this. Here and maybe so, they'll do it.
0: So I say that we we won arguments that way, but I th- who knows? I think mostly I was just proving to myself that you know not necessarily that I was right, but that it was workable. That in fact I was onto right. something. Um, You're showing your work. Uh, well, and and I'm I'm proving to myself that right. that you know, and and then in my early 30s I was kind of strident, and now. My take is more that uh, you know the world contains multitudes. I don't know, whatever. Sure, I know that. <laughs> I know we
1: are. <laughs> I'm older too. Um, I, I was considerably smarter at thirty as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. I wish I could recapture that. that being right,
0: no, um, yeah. <laughs> but that in fact, I it was a door that I could open and go through. Um, you yep. know that that looking, choosing to look at role playing games this way, even if I didn't convince a single one of my stupid friends. Yeah. Um, Nevertheless, my, my my beloved stupid friends, um, <laughs> even if I like I could still open that door and go through it myself and I could there was still fruitful game design and yeah. game play uh, on the other side of that door.
1: Well, and an amazing, I would imagine, a, a gallery of knives sharpening knives, right, where, where you, <laughs> you're challenging yourselves and each other and and, and, and and taking it back and proving things to yourself. So I'm going to yeah. turn the question on you now, Vincent. What was a concept that you heard on The Forge at first and were like, yeah, no, that 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 somebody made you, let, that maybe opened up your eyes to, to an idea or a concept that really, at first, you were reluctant to accept?
0: Well, that is a really good question. And instead, I'm going to tell you about when I played D&D. Uh, okay. For the first time as an adult, I would say, in 2008. Um, and um, my friend Lee ran that game. And it was the first time, and it was basic DD, and d Moldvay, um, Blue Box, I guess, is Moldvay. Yep. D&D, um, uh, level one through three. And Lee sat down and quick drew up a dungeon that was an abandoned castle, a castle that had been taken over by goblins. And we went into this castle, and they, Lee, was playing to find out what would happen had set up a situation and did not know what was going to happen, didn't have an ending in mind, didn't have a plan, didn't know what we were going to do, and not only didn't know, but to do anything other than react naturalistically to what we did, to have the goblins do whatever the goblins would do, Mm -hmm. to do anything other than that would have been to put a thumb on the scale and would have ruined the game experience. Um, Interesting. That Mm -hmm. as the DM... Lee was there to have fun discovering what we were going to do and that was that was the whole point the whole of point. Um, and you can see Apocalypse Orb comes right out of that experience yeah, no. right? yeah. and it, until then, until that experience until that moment, I didn't understand what that was, I didn't understand what was
1: happening in, in a it lot of games. Was Lee transparent? Was he saying this is what we're going to do or did you figure this out? Oh no, I, I figured it out yeah. yeah. Um I mean no, they, Lee, the, they might just not said, even have
0: known. Yeah. Themselves, they just like, said, "Hey, let's play D&D." And so we did. Um but it was cool. it was not until and the the games that we were doing at the forge were not really like that. As a as a GM in in most of those games, you had an editorial agenda that you were pursuing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um
1: and it was
0: it was kind of an eye opener yeah
1: Um, now do you remember i'm sure it wasn't like on a eureka moment i'm sure it was a gradual thing but but do you have a sense of when you started as the player in that D &D game started going you know something else is going on here like this isn't this isn't what i was designing before this isn't like anything i've done before like something's different here like when when do you think you got a sense of that or was it was it completely post-mortem it was it was completely post-mortem it was it was you know an hour later or whatever but um
2: when was, oh, I don't want to derail this, but I just, a timeline question. When was the, um, Primetime Adventures game with the moose?
0: That was 2004, I want to say.
2: Because I remember that also being, uh, you, like, I don't know, if, I don't know if that was the same. It was, it famous, was a completely it was different, no, no. It was sort of same with this DD. Unrelated.
0: That was, that was more about, you know, um. So, our friend Matt made this game, Primetime Adventures. This was in 2003 or
2: 2004.
0: I think it was 2003. Um, it must have been 2004. Okay. Um, and that was a game about uh, creating characters in conflict, um, in escalating conflict, in, in creating a game, intentionally creating a game with emotional stakes for the characters, is what that was about. Um, and that was. I also didn't know how to do that before they showed me how to do that at the yeah. Forge. Interesting. It, it was a
2: really, like, I remember you talking about that game a lot and, it, like, the way that that influenced, I can see the way that that influenced some of your game design. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In terms of um, having the rules of a game in Prime Time Adventures that allow you to set up the conversation and have the emotional stakes around, we're playing a children's television game.
1: Yeah. So, it's, it's, it so was... the
2: emotional stakes, you know, the gift that that can be, if you come from a background that has a lot of playing out, like we have to own up to a lot of like teenage angstiness and like yep. let's play violence, um, you know, are that have playing that playing that game. I I am really clearly like that. I yeah. would point to that as a place where you were like, oh my god, we could do incredibly meaningful, poignant conversations and things that have escalating character, drama and tension and gripping stuff where there's, you know, nobody getting killed.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I came from at that point, you know, pretty mission based shadow runny kind of, yeah. Kind of play. Um, you know, very GM driven with a plot twist at the, at the three quarter mark and stuff. Right. Kind of play. Act one, act two. Yeah. yeah. Um, I and mean, this was this was um, this was a different thing.
2: It's a really fantastic game.
1: Yeah. I think that's an underplayed, under underknown game. Un-
0: Underappreciated. Yeah. Primetime Adventures by Matt Wilson.
1: Check it out. <laughs> everybody everybody listening right now is they've already got their flipping to the next page and writing down more <laughs> stuff. We've dropped all kinds of fun stuff. Um, so guys, we'll take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I think we've already set the table. So let's talk about really when Apocalypse World started to form. So we'll be right back. Right Now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there is a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode we needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Hi, this is Brian.
0: I started listening to Third Floor Wars for information and insight about my favorite miniatures game, Malifaux. But I also get great interviews with game writers, designers, and artists, as well as some fantastic role-playing sessions with some really great players. I've been supporting them on Patreon
1: for a year and a half so far, and it has been well worth it time to give a quick shout out to some of our newest patrons a big thank you goes out to greg Packman, eric conrad joe root alan cardinal raven shadow richard beach philip savoy patrick allen third sean p kelly jesse riviki james khan and rage quitwire because of you and the other 100 plus patrons we're able to put out content on a regular basis and we appreciate it So we've already kind of started talking about it a little bit, right, where some of these concepts were started to form, um, where some of these arguments were won and lost and, and discoveries were made. Um, if I were a forensic scientist and uh, going through the archives of the Bakers and trying to trace back the origins of, of Apocalypse World, um, where do you think I would potentially go there? That's, that, that's where it, it, it was first born. Because it sounds like we're still kind of nebulous now working on concepts and theory. Um, where was the first seed? remember the day. But that's, um, that's yeah. specific. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: we came back from... I came back?
2: You came back. From
0: Gen Con 2008. Mm-hmm. And the going topic in our circles had been a game called 316 by our friend Gregor Hutton. Um, that had polarized the Forge. And half of us loved it, and the other half couldn't understand how or why it was even playable, despite the evidence of a bunch of us playing it. Um, and, you know, their argument was you weren't playing 316, you were, John Harper was running. You know, that was their argument.
2: I mean, they have a bit of a point. No,
0: they have no point. <laughs> it's not,
2: I just think John Harper is no. a good GM. John we'll move on from that.
0: John Harper is great. Yeah. but uh, John Harper's on my side of this
2: argument.
1: <laughs> <I know. laughs> he was a phenomenal guest, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. yeah. Oh, <laughs> I
0: miss that guy. I haven't seen it in years. Oh, you, yeah. you, you
1: should listen to it. Uh, you, you, your name's come up, um, and he just was, uh, and much like this interview, just so generous and and putting up with my, uh, with my questions. But we're not talking about Mr. Harper. We're talking about you guys. So um, the game is a polarizing game. Some people say it's not playable, but yet you're playing it.
0: Yeah, yes. Three, 316 was the name of that game. And um, I read it as soon as I got home. I, I played it once or twice at the con, and then I read it as soon as I got home. And I said, oh, is this what we're doing now? And um, I wrote the Brainer playbook that day.
1: No kidding. Um,
0: uh, came straight out of my head
2: full born out of his head and canton's like meg this i'm like uh-huh that let's
0: let's go from there yeah let's, let's clear the schedule
1: so if i were to go back then and look at 316 and read that and then read that first version uh, of the playbook what would i notice what would i see as being this the the the, the dump
0: Interesting. You you that's would notice true. that neither Gregor nor I told any truths about what we were up to. <laughs> that is what
2: you would
0: notice. <laughs> that you are a bunch of liars. <laughs> we we leave the whole point of the game for you to maybe discover twenty sessions later.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's How,
0: what, is, what does that mean? Um, I uh, don't want to spoil it. Okay. Unless, like, okay. So 316 is a game about war and it's about um, it's about space marines who who kill bugs. It's um uh, what's the name of that? Starship troopers. It's like it's about Starship Troopers. Um, and it's about reaching the breakpoint, rising in rank through the space marine military until you reach the reach the breakpoint. Mm-hmm. Um And it's, uh, it's about a bomb and what you do or don't do with that bomb sooner or later. Um, but the bomb gets one sentence in the book. The, the, um, and like... You would never catch it. you would never like I mean of course you would you would you would notice what where was up there sure. right. Um, you know it's it's about how tolerable is it to live in a military empire. Mm-hmm. How tolerable is it to live in a military mm-hmm. empire?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and are we talking about Vincent breaking the character or breaking the player? Yes. okay.
2: I think I mean when I played it that was definitely the experience I had it Was like oh cool wow I don't think there was a
0: yeah I mean you you know years later uh, when I read The Road I was I, I developed I hatched a, a cranky theory which is that when a post-apocalyptic writer like me or like Cormac McCarthy or like John Christopher, Mm -hmm. says, um, you know, in Cormac McCarthy's case, uh, people are having children to eat them. Um, He's not actually talking about what people would do if there were a nuclear war or whatever. He's actually talking in metaphor about what's happening in In our actual world.
1: Yeah, that's always been a great stage for that, right? And, you know, 316 is the
0: same kind of thing. You know, it's – and I I think – I haven't read Starship Troopers, but I think Starship Troopers probably – I don't is too. Um
1: very you know, much that, is
0: that um you know, Gregor says you're space marines fighting bugs, but that's not that's not what's actually going on in that Yeah. In, in, that's not what it means. That's not he he when when he says this is what it's like to be a space marine fighting bugs, he's like former McCarthy saying, you know, stay away from the people who have children just to eat them
2: Yeah, well, I mean that's that's part of the whole piece, and oh my gosh,
0: you know, and when when I say is there enough gasoline? Is there enough gasoline and enough bullets? I'm not actually talking about gasoline and bullets, you know. Um.
1: So when you look back at that moment, then Vincent, is it is it a situation where you found the setting and the and the mechanism to to? to make what you wanted to happen and play to happen. So you, you found the world or was there some mechanics that you found there or was it both?
2: I I just, I know you asked Vincent, but it's okay. Of course.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I answered this question recently and as though um, the brainer showed up and said, here, I have a suitcase and some friends, but you're going to have to figure it out. I'm going to be over here picking my teeth with a toothpick made out of a sliver of a credit card. Um, because because it it really did, at least from my experience, it really was like, here's the brainer, which implies so many things. And it really was like, um, a play to find out for us as designers or, um, you know, just follow each piece from the brainer outward to see what it implies, and that's where I mean, that's where the game came from.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wrote I wrote the list of basic moves uh, on the the playbook. You know, when you uh, act under fire, when you go aggro when you read a person, but I didn't know what those were. I just wrote them down yeah. because I was listing the things that the brainer would do. And and I was listing the things that all the characters would do, and I called those basic moves for whatever reason. And then I listed the things that only the brainer would do, and I called those brainer moves, you know.
2: The dice mechanic has an antecedent.
0: Oh, yeah. No, and, like, if you, if you start from there and go backwards into our design, mm-hmm. um, the... So we told you how siren works where you roll a pool of dice and then after you've rolled them you assign them to the different components yep. of the outcome yeah. um that's what i wanted for apocalypse world but it was too much every time and so like to design the moves i clustered components of outcomes and just said you get to choose two of them you get to choose three of them um, and you know, so it's it's an extremely direct derivative of of um, the dice that I run. Uh, only it's two d six instead of a dice. Right. So, you know, it's we we had been working on a game immediately before Apocalypse World called Storming the Wizard's Tower, and in that game you rolled a pool of dice, and um, each four or five or six counted as a hit. And it was like for each hit, you get to ask one of these questions. Yeah. Um, and and we, so that comes, Apocalypse work comes yep. straight at it. Yep.
2: And we had an accessibility concern with Storming the Wizard's Tower because we were designing with middle school yeah. students as a, a target audience. Um, and what dice can a poor what middle school kid get? Well, you can buy a pack of D6 at any drugstore in the country for
0: a buck. Right. So let's use those.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: I, I had designed a game called Poisoned, which is about pirates. Um, that Not for middle schoolers. <laughs> Not for middle schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> Barely
2: for anybody.
0: <laughs> that, that's a heck of a game. Um, that, uh, but it has an, an early version of the basic yeah. moves as well. Um, you know, you can act under duress and go into danger. You know, this very, this very verb oriented approach okay. to game design. Yeah, to do it, to do it, to do it. So
1: I'm an interesting test case, and, and to give you just a little background, and unfortunately the listeners have heard this several times, but it, it helps gives context in my my next line of questions. Um, so I, I was a bit of a rumple rumplestilskin when it comes to role playing games. Um, so I very played very heavy, um, you know, early, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, all through high school into college, and then walked away. Um, and I took about a twenty year break. From from role playing and, and, and it was I did other nerdy stuff right but but for whatever reason role playing games just weren't a part of my life for 2025 20, years and then I came back a year and a half ago um, and holy cow so wow, a lot had changed um because when i walked away it was uh you know third edition DD, advanced dnd it was gurps champions um let's create a system that that like the move was we're going to create a system that you only have to learn one system and you can play whatever you want in it and that was like the big thing right i come back and i'm like well, what the hell happened like and 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 i you know As I start exploring and figuring out things, like one of the things I come across is powered by the apocalypse, which I found, like many people found, before I found Apocalypse World, right? Um, And this concept of moves, and I'm going to tell you my first reaction was, well, that's a step backwards, right? Instead of you can do whatever you want to do, we're going to make you make moves. And not only that, like some of these games have GMs have moves they make. And I'm like, what the hell is going on right now? Like, Like this is the antithesis of what I thought role-playing was right now of course took one game and i'm like oh okay
0: <laughs> but but oh in other games these are called subsystems I get it, I, I get
1: exactly <laughs> right but, but the first impression right the first impression is it was um it was it was so it, it smelled limiting and it smelled prescriptive right um when it when in actuality it's like the exact opposite of that right um but so what i'm the reason i'm giving you that is, um it, 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 I want to give you a sense of how revolutionary it was for me right and so where does the where, where does moves come from you're like when did you guys go like we're going to define this and and it's oh, there's almost a board game aspect to that in in a way too like where does that happen
0: uh, I mean it happened when I wrote the prayer playbook.
1: I, I know that but like, <laughs>
2: like <laughs> to so try to answer your question. There's a, a, a distillation there, I think, over the process of, you know, other kind dice, and which became Sairun, and doing Storming the Wizard's Tower, and trying to sort of drill down to the heart of the matter. Like, what am I doing? As opposed to um, the the open-endedness open-ended, can be overwhelming.
1: No question. You know?
2: And having something that provides, like, just do what are you doing um, provided structure in a way that was useful, and we could see that happening. And then it was a question of identifying, um, as Vincent said, uh, okay, all of this sort of stuff is act under fire, and all of this sort of stuff is really a situation E. Right. So those become the, the subsystems. Um, but the question really is in terms of where moves come from, and then you can see that through other games that we've designed since then that have moves, because not all of them do. The question is, what are you doing?
1: Mm-hmm. And... And what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. The, um,
0: uh, I was being gamey on purpose. I wanted it to be like a board game. I wanted it to be, um, you know, when the GM turns and looks at you expectantly, you look down your character sheet and you choose your move and you do it. Um, and like, I didn't want it to always play that way. Right. But when that happened, I wanted there to be something for you to say, um, I mean, that you could you could simply choose a move and you could simply proceed yeah um, there's, there's and the, they they would always they would always be things that you in fact meant to do and in fact wanted to do and you would be eager to do them and you were excited to wait I can go aggro on this guy I'm gonna go I? aggro on this guy
2: so but there's another piece in here which is that between when you wrote um, kill puppies for Satan, uh, just after we'd had our second child when he, Apocalypse War. When the brainer showed up, we had just had our third child, so any game design that we needed to do or play testing that we needed to do had to fit around three children. Interesting, and a and a full time job and a part time job. Yeah. So that really shaped a lot of it. Like we did not have time to mess around with the like four hours before anybody does anything. Like I like I remember playing games for. 12 or 16 mm-hmm. hours in high school and now it was like cool we can play yes. from nine o'clock after the baby is asleep until eleven thirty when the first other person in the play group starts to be like i'm crashing and i have work mm-hmm. tomorrow so no. that was such a driving force on moves and on the gm specifically that like i don't i don't have time to do four days of prep work before the session i i just don't right i need it to be something that i feel satisfied with my prep work in like while the baby is sleeping i have an hour and a half to put together where are the threat types where are they moving what's an interesting triangle that's happening and um yeah that's cool i'm really cute what i wonder what the hell is up in the rafters yeah you know mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And so that was a huge driving um, force in this. Yet um, to the point,
1: do it. It was a paradigm shift for me, too, because I had left a world where the, all the weight was on the GM and you were putting a show on for the players. And when I come back, it, it, it was, I was amazed at how it now became a shared experience and something that we do together. And, and, and the best way I've heard it put is suddenly the GM got to play. Which which sounds really silly, but for me was incredibly profound, incredibly profound running games now versus, you know, running games, you know, 27, because I was a GM them and I'm GM now. But, but wow, I get to play now. And and it's incredible. It's incredible. And it's interesting to see that that was on purpose.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was absolutely on purpose, like, even to the point of our design work on a pop-up squirrel, because There were places in that when our youngest was a baby that, like, the time we got to spend together being like, okay, let's work on this game design moment was so precious and brief. You know, and there'd be like, okay, I'm just gonna make sure I always have a notebook with me so that I'm taking the baby for a stroll around the neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, I've gotta write that idea down, you know? Because neither of us had cell phones. There wasn't text messaging yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there wasn't like walking down with the phone. Off. So, so much of what we did in Apocalypse World is absolutely comes directly out of limp experience here it has to be fun right now it has to be it has to be a payoff like i i can't wait i've waited all week to play this game with you please god let's just Blow shit up <laughs> let's make let's make
1: stuff happen right yeah yeah no absolutely no question about that and it, and it and it definitely works so what's the next stage in the development then so we we see the you know the brainer gets put out there the brainer is t- telling you stories and helping oh, yeah. you design the game um when do you think what, what's phase two well we
0: played the hell out of it um, i mean
2: yeah like part of our design work is always to be like Here's a mechanic. Let's t- test it. You know, there's, So there's a ton of little bits which you could look at as phase. Part of you know, the blur between phase one of like, what do you think about this? Yes, let's do that. Yeah. And phase two, which would be, here's a PDF we could send off to somebody. So there's a ton of incremental steps of, let's play this. Nope, that doesn't work. All right, I'll work on it later. To... Let's play for an hour and then we played. We for
0: started a while. playing locally huh. with our with our friends. We started in like playing two
2: thousand
0: seven? No. I mean that was two thousand eight the, the Brainer but as soon as we had six playbooks. Right,
2: um, right. right, As soon right, as right, we right. had six
0: playbooks, we started playing it. So two thousand nine then. Uh, so uh, so the, the Brainer playbook was Jencon two thousand eight immediately after. And the book came out at Gen Con twenty ten.
1: Wow. So those okay.
0: those two years. Yep. Um, as soon as we had we had five or six playbooks. we were playing it locally, and then, as soon as I had something to share, I was sharing it uh on the forge mm-hmm. um, this and was what were some years. of the
1: initial reactions to that Vincent, when you started putting it in front of people?
0: <laughs> oh my God, my friends, I tell you um, so the, uh, <laughs> the, the 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 people who grabbed onto it were. Not my sort of debate partners at the Forge. Um, as close to that is John Harper. Um, he he was as close to an early adopter who was a debate partner at the Forge as as there was. It was um, mostly people who had not sort of committed to the Forge the way I had, but who picked the playtest documents up off of my blog or whatever. Yeah.
2: Well, um, part of it is who that really seized on it. Everybody was working on their own game. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. there was this right. cycle. Right. You know, before before widespread PDFs, before a good print on demand, before drive through RPG and WOO and things like that, there would be a real cycle of n- new for on. So by right. the time you got around to January, like January and February, where we are, was like play test hell and we all felt it and we all played each other's games and we all commiserated because it would be like god I'm working on this game I know alright fine Can you guys help me fix my, my
0: broken game and we're like
2: crap. no this so we're real. trying to fix ours <laughs> yeah but we it, it, it creates and it's it's you know that's Joshua and Joshua A.C. Newman and Julia Ellingbow and Emily K. and um Evan Torner, and Kat Jones, and us, and um, who else am I forgetting? Elizabeth Sandbach. Uh, um, and uh, that was pretty much the immediate crew during that time. Rumble. Rob Bull. Rob um, Bull. Oh, um, Dev. Dev Patel? Dev Patel and Lars um, Sanders, is that right? Samson. Samson. Yep. Um, all the sort of Massachusetts crew. We didn't get together with Deb and um, Laura nearly as often as we would have liked, yeah. but um, that meant that the indifference that Vincent mentions is, because, like, it wasn't like, whatever, it was like, God, I hear you, but I've got yeah. this thing.
0: Oh, oh, no, they were like, whatever, Vincent, whatever.
2: All right,
1: I'm...
0: V- Vincent, why are you sending us this nonsense? Oh, this yeah, well, inconceivable like it's like uh, in what's the word it's in unintelligible. Yeah, that's funny
1: so you you said that john harper was an early adopter so I, i'd be curious can you walk me through his reactions or his phases of acceptance
0: oh yeah like the like two days after he got the um the playtest documents so this would have been middle of 2009 um he published a little game called ghost lions i want to oh, say yeah,
2: yeah the trains one
0: um which was, you know, him internalizing Apocalypse. You know, he's he spent a day internalizing Apocalypse world and then published a little game. Out of, Jerk. <laughs> no <I'm> kidding. Um, <laughs> so, like, I don't know what that process was like for him, other than you know the way he tells it. I uh, forgive me if I'm misrepresenting you, John Harper. The way he tells it, it's like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs>
2: So there's this thing that happens. I, I, there's a thing that happens when you're in, in textile work that is similar to this, where you're wrestling with, it, you're like, how am I going to do that? How because it's textile work often, not always, but often involves thinking in three dimensions, um, mm-hmm. and that is hard. Um, you have to think about three dimensions, and you think, have to think about how do I unfold that shape. And in museum work, I run into it all the time where I have a distorted piece of, of a garment in some weird shape and I have to figure out how to care for it when I cannot possibly treat it like any other garment I normally would. So I have to think in a totally different way. And I'm like, sometimes that looks like looking at the garment and sometimes it look, it's like sitting and then it clicks. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, like that, you know, so... I think that this is a part is part of game design and I think it's why so many of us are also other we have other creative outlets and we have other ways in which we are systems systems analysts and yep. system thinkers. Problem solvers. Problem solvers because that sort of um of wide lateral connective thinking gets us to these leaps that allow for the brainer to come, boom, and then we go, or John Harper to be like, "Oh yeah, you know." It, it just it happens. It, the reverse is also true. The part where you're like bleeding out of your forehead because if you're hitting the table with your head so much, like I have, I can't go to get. It's also that's also true. It's not like any of it is easy, but I think that it's um,
1: it's part of the picture though in, in games of thrones. Yeah. yeah. Now the concept of partial successes, um, was that something that we can look to apocalypse world for, or did that exist before? And you kind of brought it in.
0: Oh yeah. No, I think I learned it from Talislanta. Got it. Uh, yeah. Conceivably back in the 89. Um, like even shadow run, you know, where you're rolling a dipole and you're counting the, yeah. counting the successes. Um, and like, Shadowrun does uh, a pass fail on some tasks. You know, if I need to pick the lock, I need three successes or whatever. Yeah. But when you're fighting, each success just becomes a a hit point damage or whatever. Like I don't remember Shadowrun, but um, and really the those those partial successes come from that idea of you know.
1: But it wasn't codified there, though, Vincent. I I mean, I understand what you're saying, but like the. The concept of, and and this is this is my lack of understanding of the history and the, the lineage, right? But the, here's how it struck me: I was I was amazed because I came from a pass fail world, and I came back to a world of wow, like you know, failing forward, uh, succeeding with consequences, and and it's not just you need a sixteen, um, and and so that that blew my mind, and. I am trying to I've I've been trying through all of these conversations to try to understand when it got codified when did it say you succeed with consequences
2: I I have an insight I'd love to hear if you have a Yeah point. No, but I, my insight is that this pulls back in yeah but I think it comes back into something we touched on earlier which is gamers having kids and that educate education theory proceeds with kids. and it, in education theory, one of the things you come to is that idea that uh, suddenly, finally, we can embrace failing forward. You know, as as the importance of STEM uh, curricula comes up, and we recognize that, oh God, yes, fail all the time, fail forward, fail, fail with joy. Um, that influences all of the people who are doing game design, and I definitely think that for me, with you know, a mixed success piece. Um, part of that comes from the big night. Um, Alan, what's Alan's last name? Anyway, the big night, um, which is a game designed to be kids or play play kids sort of things. So it's very cool. But the, the idea that failing isn't—it doesn't mean the, the game stops. It doesn't mean you you're bad. It doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean it, horrible things happen. It means oh God. You missed that roll. The shot went totally like bad. Where did it go? Right. And then you're like, oh, I want to tell you. I get to tell you. You know, because that's so dang cool.
0: That was that was a thing. Um, this this very particular little thing um, in the forge in like two thousand one, two thousand two, two
2: thousand three, which is, more which more is when that
0: yeah. game came from. Um, and I think it. It may have appeared originally in Ron Edwards' game, Troll Babe, and it may have mm-hmm. appeared somewhere else first. But the idea was that the GM describes your successes and you describe your failures. Yeah. And, um, you know, that moment of empowerment at the moment when you were disempowered. Right. Um, uh, it's freaking great. It's, it's, it changes the, changes the game. Like yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a real... Yeah. A real, a real upender of of how that works. But, um, you know, with the... the, I, for whatever random reason in my head in the late 90s, I became really... Probably because I love Yahtzee, I became really intent on the idea that you would make decisions about the dice after you had rolled them. Mm. Um, And so you know, with, with other kind of side run where you never roll all sixes. I mean, once in a while you do and you're, you're as happy as can be, but usually you have a high die and a low die that you have to decide where they go. And, um, you know, breaking, breaking the, your efforts out into this set of consequences, possible consequences instead of a single outcome, um, and then letting you choose between them—that was a really important part of those of those partial mm-hmm. successes, uh, you know. And that's why in Apocalypse World they're all choose uh, on a ten plus choose two on a seven to nine choose right. choose one is because that's equivalent to rolling two sixes and a and a three or a six and two threes, you know. In uh,
1: so the phrase that um, amazes me um, and I'm in love with it is: uh, "Tell me what happens." right and, and it's it's a very simple, simple phrase that when i and my first exposure to it was uh jay little 's narrative dice um when I came across that and realized what what little was talking about with the dice and because I picked up the Star Wars because I love star wars and and I was like, oh, this is you know fantasy flight, you got to buy their dice right, and I thought it was a gimmick, and then I started using it, and I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing, but that was my first exposure to uh, and it wasn't the first time it happened. My first exposure to tell me what happened. Um, it, that sounds to me like it was happening with you guys for a long time. That that you were doing that way before Apocalypse World, where you were where, where you were saying we're all going to do this together.
2: Yep. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. absolutely, definitely. Like there were like pivotal moments um, of playing Ars Magica with Esther in college, and absolutely with playing Emily, uh, playing Ar- Ars Magica with Emily for years afterward, and. All the way through, and then at the we, Forge. and at the forge, and you know when we got together locally, with different
0: yeah
1: you know, yeah, yeah. yeah no. um, and was that a conventional wisdom then at the forge at that point? was everybody saying, yeah, you, we're all going to do this together now, or was well, that the,
0: the, one of the things at the forge was narration rights, yeah, and so there was this game called the Proul. Uh, no this is this is good stuff, this is important. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> the, um, There's this game called the pool that our friend James West made, James V. West. Um, which? How did the pool work? There was some sort of you would roll your dice, and then you would. Under some circumstances, you could choose whether you would succeed, and the GM would say what happened, or you would fail, and then you would say what happened. Mm-hmm. And that that took off. That right. caught on, mm-hmm. and a lot of people incorporated. That that must be where it came from before Troll Bay. Where like oh, Troll yeah. Bay codified yeah, that to On a on a failure, you describe what happens, and on a success, the GM describes yeah. what happens. Um, but uh, that was a an incredibly influential game, and. 2000, 2001, 2002, something like that. And um, there were there were a million games that had different takes on that, different angles on that, different nuances of that. Uh, under what circumstances you got to say what happened and under what circumstances somebody else got to say what
1: happened. At, at what point did the two of you decide that the GM uh, or the CM was not going to roll dice? At what point did you say, you know what? The players are going to roll dice.
0: Of that worked. First time I wrote a move, like, yeah, I, wrote, like I wrote the, the Brainer thing, playbook, and sooner or later I had to commit to what acting under firement. Yeah
2: Yeah, um, that's that's still different than that. The the MC doesn't roll dice in Apocalypse Alone.
0: That that was never a principal decision for me. That is <laughs> just how it happened just, to happen.
2: Yeah, and but that's important. Like it's huge. One of, it's huge. Yeah, one of the things that um about uh, some of our game design people are like, wow, this I'm like it's just how it went we didn't choose it yeah. there are yeah. things that we spent a ton of time and energy really carefully thinking about but that just you know by the time we followed all the threads out from the brainer playbook and got to like okay that's a rule set that people can play with that does what we want to do and creates this container around the conversation in a way that feels good and works oh GM doesn't roll dice. Right, well, I guess that's fine. You know?
0: It was it was like literally 50-50, whatever came out of my head that day, whether it was all the player rolling or every role would be an opposed role with the GM.
1: Right. Right. And and what what it does, or what it did for me, I should say, not what it does, what it did for me was suddenly like I'm like, I don't have to be behind a screen anymore. Right, I, I don't have to hide, hide and circle my little, you know, D four, and then, you know, do that, and 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 that blew my mind as well. Um, and I don't know whether. Uh, so here's the question: Was there a desire to? add transparency as part of this collaborative process where we're not, we're going to just, everything's going to happen in the open. We're just going to roll dice together. We're going to figure out what happened. You're going to have narrative rights to, to this process. Was that just the, like how it all ended up happening because you wanted that to be the case? Yeah. That's what we were all doing. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah.
2: And in like in our own design, I had written a thousand one nights specifically to defetishize dice in that's one of my like I think I even lay it out in the game text in the end of the book. You know that the point is that like just use all the pretty ones, put them in the middle of the pile there, the gems of the Sultan, go from there. And so we had that piece going into um storming the wizard's tower and, and apocalypse yeah. world of like there is no reason for to put there's no why would you do that to put one person in your group in that place of pressure and power and like freak out stress and by that time of course all of us did have the internet and ways to connect and find each other and all of the stories about how crappy that was for some of us as kids growing up Mm -hmm. and like what that led to in terms of of just not cool stuff and why would we want to replicate that um so, making different choices,
0: yeah but um but the idea that everybody would know the rules, everybody would be able to read the dice. there was no reason to keep the dice secret mm-hmm. um, you know that's that's part of if the game works, you don't need to fudge dice and everybody can read them. you can just roll your dice and we can all we can all see what's going to happen and we can all Yeah, we all read them correctly and follow the rules.
2: Well, and we also we also put. And that was
0: that was part of the Forge's ethic.
2: Yeah, yeah, and then specifically in the the Apocalypse Forge, we also put in a piece of like do overs is cool. Like if you're like, oh, hold on, that no, I forgot a thing. Let's redo that bit, and sometimes that involves a you know re-roll. Yeah, being like, oh, hold on, no, you actually made that roll because I we 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 messed up with it, so. Putting that part in the transparency column as well, saying, you know, there, there's no, there, nothing, nothing should make a piece of plastic ruin someone's night. <laughs> yeah,
1: we we are playing, right?
2: It's it's that's crap. Don't yeah. do that. And an MC,
1: like a, a GM, <laughs> Go like.
2: Ahead. Consent is fine. If you're like there to like destroy my character. Okay, cool. I'm all for it. Yeah, for no, it. I
0: was, I was going to say something. Else. Okay,
2: cool. But I want to say one other piece, which I've been saying a lot lately, which is the an, a GM who says, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's how the, that's just how the dice were. You're, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do has come to be for me. If there isn't really good buy-in and really level playing field in terms of the actual real life power at the table, that is as crappy to me as a player who says, well, that's that's just what my character would do, and uses that as an excuse to be cruel or um, belittling or bullying or yeah, just don't. Just, just don't. You don't have to be that way. So if that means occasionally going, oh, I see that this means more to you. How can, can someone help? You know, the helping rules, helping mechanics. Like, oh, Somebody help this person. Right. <laughs> Do that. Life's too short.
0: Uh, I was going to say that uh, some games use hidden information like Scrabble. Oh, and yeah. Some games use exposed information like Yahtzee. And um, they're both good. You should choose the one that you need for your game.
1: So the other thing, and there's, I mean, we could have 10 interviews about this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying stuff and you guys are being very patient with me. But the other thing that stood out to me was um, the, the codifying of relationships and making, putting a mechanic around relationships, the HX and just that, that entire piece, um, which, you know a lot of the stuff I was like, yeah, I always did that. You know, I always had something like that. That was always an important part of my games, but it was never written down. Well, you guys wrote it down. Right. And you, and you, and you put a mechanic around that. What, what drove that for you?
2: Um, that I think was for, for me, it, it was definitely dealing with the sex ed background and the um, counseling background that, um, that how you are in the world ties to other people and that your concept, that your actions in the in the world how you treat other people has repercussions and that if you're interested in playing a full human being if you're interested in playing a full character they're going to have these other other entanglements you know it's they're it's just true and um, that's really where that comes from for me and HX comes from um, it's uh, medical shorthand. for history. I was an EMT, and um, it sure does look apocalyptic.
1: <laughs> it does. It does. But but what what do, so I, I get that for a style of play, right? So you, you were and, and you know there were games that were being played before Apocalypse World, where this was a central piece to the play in those play groups, right? In in those sessions with those with that particular group of players. What makes you say, no, we're going to, this is going to be written down. It's going to be dictated, not dictated, but it's going to be outlined clearly in the book. And, and we're going to, we're going to mechanically make it present. I, I'm trying to figure out where, where, the, where the decision to put it down on paper comes from.
2: Because that's it's that's an inher- inherently, I'm going to say this for a few minutes, because it's in, an inherently feminist consent driven piece of work. Got it. And that. To, to put that on the table um, gives some bit of place to stand on from my perspective as a designer to say that you have agency in this area because I, like I said at the very beginning, extremely un- unlikely, you know, that my first GM was a girl a couple years older than me and that I have always played. I don't, in in mixed groups right and the the consistent narrative that we ran into forever and still run into of people who have been like just really traumatized at a gaming table over how, their actual being um I, I want to no part of that. And so yeah. putting it putting it explicitly in there. I am fine if you never engage with them. But it needs to be on the table. It is important to me that Apocalypse World has been a place where people that I know have been like, Oh, hold on. Maybe it's okay if I'm queer. What would it be like? Would that be okay? Yeah. And I mean that's part of what role playing game has always done. Mm-hmm. But you know, putting it in the book of like, what if, you know? So that's that's my piece. Sure. In, in, for why the history move? The, for, for why history is the way it is, and why the sex moves are in the book. Um, and like, well, if I was writing it in twenty twenty one, if we were about to come at, out, out with it now, I might shift a little call it an intimacy move and switch things around (laughs)
0: Vincent <laughs> no, wouldn't. Uh, a lot of the games that came after sort of called them intimacy moves and some of them make no sense but see, that's it's the like thing. when you're having coffee with your brother
2: no that is not that I mean, is not, not a real, real move so is i not I've got
1: that we've happens. got a whole segment for this so let's hold off on that because i do want to talk about i do want to talk about the fertile ground that you guys put out there but um but uh vincent i want to know what, what's your angle on this uh, talk to me about you codifying this
0: so um the, the way history works in particular, helping and interfering based on this, this stacking up with the other person that comes right out of a game called the mountain witch by Tim Kleiner. Right. Um, and you know, in, in his game, it's how much you trust each other. You're a bunch of grown uh, climbing Mount Fuji to kill the mountain witch and you can't trust each other, but you must trust each other. And so that's, that's that mechanic. And, um. From that seed, it it developed into what it is in Apocalypse World, but that comes right out of of Tim's game.
1: It's very, very cool, and um, I have yet... I, I think I've played everything at this point, but Apocalypse World. that.
2: Look at you, You obviously have a time slot that works.
1: Why are you talking to us on a Tuesday night? You could be playing Apocalypse World. That's funny. I mean,
2: you could be talking to us <laughs>
1: and playing Apocalypse World. Um, but it... Um, and and it was part of the reason that I hunted you both down is because quite frankly your names kept coming up as I kept talking to different people in the industry and started basically catching up Um, and I'm doing it through my podcast um, and learning it Um, it helped me forensically find like oh here's where it kind of here it is a little bit and we've done a really good job I think of of helping me and hopefully the listeners kind of understand how we got there Um, and what I want to do is I want to take a break when we get back from this break we're going to talk about what happened after words because a lot has happened since so we'll be right back howdy friends greg here nothing makes malifaux easier than having the right tools here at the third floor we love all the licensed Malifo goodies from custom meeple not only are they helping support this podcast they sell custom made weird licensed tokens and terrain they sell it all Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and play mats. I, I mentioned, uh, Uh, to Miguel and Vincent that uh, that I'd heard the term powered by the apocalypse before I'd heard of of apocalypse world. Right. Um, And um, I've had a great opportunity to talk to a lot of people um, from designers to people that are lifelong players. And um, one of the, one of the ideas I want to hammer out with you guys a little bit is um, this concept that I'm coming across and people are very opinionated about this, which is when we're playing a role-playing game, are we creating a world and we have some people in it and I'm, I'm using people generically players in it. Right. Or are, is this a story about the players? Are they the central characters to what's happening here? So let's, let's go backwards just for a second to apocalypse world. If if I were to force you to say it's one or the other, could we say apocalypse world is one or the other, or is it whatever the hell you want? You could be both.
0: No, no, no. I have such like my answer to this is, is concrete um uh apocalypse world is a game about the actions that the characters take okay and so to take actions the characters must exist and they must exist in a context but the game is about those actions that's my answer
1: yeah no i mean that, that that's the answer right Yeah, no, and that helps me a lot. So now, because I think um, when some people talk to me about Powered by the Apocalypse, that's what they talk about is how Powered by the Apocalypse really made the player characters the center of the world, right? And it's their story. Um, And I didn't know whether that was something that you thought as well uh, with Apocalypse World, or is that something that came from it? So that helps. So where where do you start to realize... um, You know this core engine, um, and it's it's more than just a core engine. It's a philosophy and an approach. This (laughs) is this is this is something that we can't hold on to. Um, Is it something where you said yes? We want here. Go go with this. You know, run with it. Or was it um, like? Did people just start taking it? Like, where it is powered by the
0: like John Harper's way of understanding it was to design and publish a game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was long before Apocalypse World came out. He had seen the playtest material a
2: yeah. whole year before.
0: Um, we uh, by the time we published, um, Tremulous was in in development. Monster, um, hearts, Monster Hearts, Monster Hearts, of Monster of the Week, Dungeon World. Dungeon World. Those were the four. Those were the four plus a bunch that have not. Uh, existed since the regiment, I think, was right. In things, that
2: things that didn't actually come to fruition yeah. in in a in a way that w- some people would necessarily think. Of them. Like people played the regiment, and John Harper might consider it, you know, whatever. Because like another part is not every single design has to be finished. Yes. Like do what you do with um, it and learn with yeah. you learn with it. It's really important. And as when I'm working with younger designers, when I'm working with our kids, even that it's a good thing if you have. 50 ideas to every product that you're able to like print out and lay on the table and say, here's a thing I did because, you know, yeah, have way more abandoned 30 ideas before breakfast, you know, sort of thing.
1: So we've we've already named some of the big ones, right? Dungeon World, uh, Monster Hearts, um, Blades in the Dark. I consider as part of that camp of of really it, it came,
2: that out later. came out later, much,
0: much
1: later. later. It much the- later. Correct,
0: it, correct. It, it,
2: it, it, it,
1: it's that we were racing to publication. Interesting, like,
2: interesting. We yeah. <laughs> say that, but if you look we, at, the, the, if you look at the, the like publication date, it, Apocalypse World came out first, and then Dungeon World and um, Monster Hearts and Monster of the Week. And Tremulous came out like a year year
0: later, later,
2: 2011.
0: Go ahead. But so basically as soon as I said, Hey, would you look at this playtest material? You know, to my, my friends and colleagues, they were working on games.
2: The the people who Um, were, the people who were like, Oh, this, there it
0: was. And so by the time, by the time we published, we knew what was coming.
1: Um, and what was your reaction? So let's talk about Dungeon World. So you 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 get Dungeon World in front of you and you look at that, um what's what what are your thoughts and reactions to it?
0: Well, I sat down with Sage LaTora in um 2011 before Dungeon World came out. Uh the preliminary their little red book um, was was floating around but they had not really gone into publication and um At that point, I could have, we could have um, really concrete conversations with everybody who was working on it. Yeah, there were like a dozen of them. um,
2: We knew them. We talked to them.
1: Right.
0: And so, you know, these these were our friends who who were like, can we build on your ideas? And we said, obviously.
2: Because that's how we had been for the last 20 years, is in this place of back and forth dialogue between friends of like, Oh, that I think I'm going to try this, you know? And that was just part of the process.
0: The, um, you know, there's a whole chapter in the back of apocalypse world that lists every game we ever played or, or, I mean, you know, the one, um, and that was our, our ethic and remains our ethic is to, yeah, to build on each other's ideas. Um, and, and so our position so, so it became really clear right away that uh,
2: that people were going to use the toolbox like, and that were like, people wanted to yeah
0: right. and so our choice then was to say yes or no yeah. and
2: like if we had wanted to be like okay sure but you'll have to pay us x thousand dollars amount of whatever or we get a cut of everything forever or you know, figuring out all that sort of stuff there's some factors in there which one of them goes back to the design place which were like three young children <laughs> busy freaking life and yep. just please just credit us and go do your thing and you know but the other part of that is an a- an actual ethic which means back to you know the feminist consent basis of it and like if this can help you right, like you know,
0: like Ten years earlier, I had felt completely shut out of producing role playing games. Yeah, and I wasn't. But so, so where we came down was on copyright, and you know, my interpretation, our interpretation of copyright law is that if you want to publish our work, you need our permission. Mm -hmm. We can license it to you or whatever. But if you're publishing your own work. That's your work. That's your work. And if it's based on our ideas, every game is based on everybody's ideas. Right. Like, right. there's no... there's no
2: Give credit where due.
0: Right. So, so our ethic is, is you know, credit your sources. Credit us when we're your source. Yep. Same as we credit our sources. I mean, you've
2: heard us through this. Like, we can't go a minute without naming something or buddy, you know? Um,
0: but you don't even need our permission if you're not using our words. Yeah. Right. Um, and... Like, I have these ideological opinions about game licenses that, where I'm like, you know, if I if I agree to the license, I'm actually giving up rights as a creator. Um, you aren't extending rights to me. I'm extending rights to you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, if I want to make a game, you know, an OGL game or whatever, uh, I would be better off not adopting the license. <laughs> anyway, whatever. I have my, my cranky... I,
1: I know where you're headed. Ideas. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and so i couldn't i couldn't see personally any place to stand other than copyright law why why would i try to like and i dislike copyright law for many reasons but at least we can agree to it at least yeah. that's what we know right yep. and at least at least if i say no just follow copyright law you need our permission to publish our work and you don't need our permission to publish your work um then then we can be satisfied that that is, in fact, how we're conducting our society right now and uh, that, that nobody is taking anybody in that situation.
1: So did you, did you have a reaction uh, to Cobles and Sage's work? So when you read Dungeon World, did you just see it as a reskin or did they really take it to uh, interesting places in your mind?
0: I'm going to fess
1: up. I don't think I've read Dungeon World. Well, that solves that problem then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I sat down and I had this long talk with Sage about, about what they were doing and yep. what their dreams and aspirations were, where they were going, and how our visions for the future of gaming lined up. And uh, I was completely satisfied with what with what they were doing, what their... Um, you know, who, who they were saying, fuck
1: you to. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I can't, I've actually, I'm exci- excited because I have Sage booked for the show. Uh, so I can't wait dungeon. to talk to him. I've heard he read a dungeon world. So I'll ask him that question. <laughs> 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 um, well, so out of curiosity, then, um, you know, we look at monster of the week, we look at monster hearts. I mean, do you look to any of those and see them as a next generation or do you see them uh, as just part of the overall ecosystem?
2: Yeah, I definitely see it as, a, like, an ecosystem attitude. Um, and, like, that pond can be really big. You know, I think there's a lot of different stuff going on down there. Um, but I think in order to get to sort of next-generation PBTA design, it has to go further afield. Okay. I mean, we've talked about that a little bit, like our PBTA eye openers. You know, in, in order to get to next generation, from my perspective, uh, it has to be like, how are you changing this in a in a in a? It, it can't just be different. What you look at me like? <laughs> I don't know I say it that way. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean,
0: that, that's fine. I think the ideas are going to diffuse into the into the. Atmosphere,
2: yeah, right,
0: and that um, you know, x many years from now, you won't be able to tell what came from where. Like n- none of those, none of those distinct. Very
1: fair. Yeah. Things are. Going yeah, to survive. yeah, and I think I'm, that
2: there's that's that. I think that's more accurate. Like yeah. the the next generation implies a lineage in a way that is um, more uh, clearly delineated yeah. than I think it is. I think that as there become more and more and more. PBTA games, it becomes more diffuse. It becomes more like, you know, just more weird on the edges,
0: and as those ideas have influence outside yeah. of PBTA, yeah. um, right? You know, as far as I know, Quest, for instance, is as far as I know, they aren't directly influenced by uh, Apocalypse World or PBTA in any mm-hmm. way, but they've encountered those ideas somehow, yeah. and and they have. Arrived at some conclusions the same way we all have, and so those those boundaries blur in both directions.
1: Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of people that have talked to me about Monster Hearts, and they see that as a shift, right? As as as, um what was important and the focus for many people, they see Monster Hearts doing something a little bit different. Um, and I'd be curious to know whether you think that that's the case or not, or was Monster Hearts uh putting even more importance on uh, the intimacy moves, uh, the the relationships and things like that. Is that just a natural part of Apocalypse World, just put in somewhere else? Or or was it was that something different?
2: I think you'd have, you'd have to ask Avery, but I think that right.
1: you can definitely- And I will.
2: Say- <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I think, that, I think that there's, I think that that's not a, a I think that's an observation that could be made, that there are different games out there that are PBTA that took something from Apocalypse World and follow that further out, like what? Right.
0: what you know, great. Uh, yeah. You know, one of one of my very favorites is our friend Epydia Roushaw's game Wolfspell, mm-hmm. um, and what that game does, and it has you know it has a thousand influences, same as every other game. It's not it's not derived whole from Apocalypse World, but what it does is it takes um, reading a situation. And it says, "Here's how you read a situation when you're a wolf, and here's how you read a situation when you're a Viking warrior." And it creates this really interesting game about you're a Viking warrior who's been turned into a wolf. Are you going to stay a wolf? Or are you going to are you going to turn back at the end? How do you deal with the world in both of those ways? And it, so it sort of takes this this little piece of Apocalypse, world, this piece of apocalypse world, and builds it into a. Uh, a game, And I see that happening a lot, um, you know, and, and Monster Hearts does that as well, where, you yep. know, there's this piece that then, that then,
2: yeah, and I, I, and
0: I, and I'm, I'm making sort of a blooming gesture, but it doesn't come from Apocalypse World. It comes from everything else and coalesces and Apocalypse World is one of those threads. It's one
1: of the threads in, woven in there. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense that makes a ton of sense and maybe it's maybe it's too easy just to say well we see this we see the mechanics right and and yeah. say that, that's, that 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 that's what what drives it. but and you guys have made a very strong case in the in the last 2 hours of saying no that that's just a that's one thread in all of this that it's a much bigger thing and it, and it's it's that makes a ton of sense a ton of sense to me um so
0: i had this conversation <laughs> with my friend bill white the the going topic it, that year whatever at the conventions was Um, that if you made a PBTA game, Vincent did the game design work. That was the going conversation. Yeah. Um, And so Bill, who's a a game historian, um, he put it to me. He said, Vincent, if I make a PBTA game, did you do the design work? And I'm like, Bill, say I come to you and I say, Bill, I need you to make a car chase mechanic. And it has to work with two D six, and you can do two D six plus a stat. You can do another resource if you want. Has to fit on uh, eight and a half by eleven. Two, one side of eight and a half by eleven, and it has to fit in these structures called moves. And you go away and you come back and you say, Vincent, I did it. Have I done the design? No, no. I just posed you this ridiculous I like, challenge. I was like, like
2: here are some <laughs> here are the tools, here's the right. constraints and affordances. Yay, go. You know?
0: Yeah. Anyway.
1: Well, it's a great way to great way to articulate it, though, because I can understand where the other argument comes from. Um, but I think that that, uh, quite honestly, shuts it down, right? Um, and makes it very, very clear. And if there's one person to answer the question or two people to answer the questions, the <laughs> two of you.
2: <laughs> Speaking of questions, you did mention that it's been two hours. That I want to make sure that we get to your questions. So if there are other questions, because as, as uh, we really enjoyed talking with you and we can really do it for a long time but if you have other questions you're like i really want to not miss the chance to ask this let's make sure we hit that
1: i have one more left and then you guys are free of me (laughs) (laughs) i'd be interested now um what are you what non-baker games are you excited about what non-baker games are you playing and what are things that make you excited about tomorrow and five years from now from a game perspective
2: I love all those questions. Um, non-baker games. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, are you familiar with the internet phenomenon known as Blazeball? I am not. Well, I <laughs> Blazeball is a surrealist um, fantasy baseball phenomenon online that is bizarre and fun and strange. And the discord that I help moderate has like 31,000 people. Whoa! Yeah. So as in terms of non-Baker games, the game band um, who created Placeball, we're kind of playing that a lot in a really weird, like, I guess I want to go manage people's drama on the
1: internet. It's lots of fun. Um, Can you give me a little idea of what it is?
2: Oh sure, it's like it's fantasy baseball with cross with Night vale. Interesting. Yeah, with a little like weird, you want say so like, weird spins?
0: Fictional teams. Yeah. You follow a fictional team. Um, like I have no idea how it started, but it looks to me like it started as a randomized baseball scoring yeah. simulation.
1: Isn't that fascinating? Of
0: baseball it's really games. cool. Have you ever scored a baseball game with pen and paper? And a I story? have.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: kind of intensive and it started with that. And um I, I don't know that it started with that, but that's at the heart that's of it. That's what it smells like.
2: Right. If you're interested.
0: And like in, go to go to baseball.com yeah. If you've scored baseball games, you will be as hooked as as I was. <laughs> I, was I, I was announcing the games into the so cool. into the living room to whoever <laughs> would listen.
2: And I was like, okay, gotta check this out. Oh, I can be like part of it, so I'm doing that. So, are you
1: scoring fictional people, or are you yes. scoring? Yes. It's, okay, we'll talk they about just this scroll, later. Just, They
0: just scroll past these let's, fictional let's, games. Let's, let's not get into And you problem. follow <laughs> your team, and you hope you win, and you get points. I'm a fan of the, I've the, got the, ho- I've got homework. Yeah, the, I like the it. The, Hellmouth. the
2: Hellmouth. I'm a fan of the helmet team. The helmet. What's their The, Hellmouth. the Hellmouth Sunbeams. Sunbeam's of course. Um. There's the H- the Hades Tigers are good. The, oh come on, they're fine. No, the they're Chicago right fire side. fire the Chicago firefighters. They are from Chicago. Um.
1: So uh, you guys, you guys are like super excited about this, which make which is really neat. And now I've got to go back to the Baker brain and go what 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 hooked you? What, like what is it about this that makes you go? This is really cool.
2: It is surrealist fun with a with an extremely queer element and extremely horror element. Um, And it creates community around it in a way that is really interesting. And it came up during the first six months of the 2020 pandemic when people were largely isolated. So it gave people a way to connect and it introduced people who liked baseball but couldn't go to baseball games um, with a, a way to deal with that. And people who liked like weird imaginary fandom, a way to deal with that. And now you're getting this amazing mash intersection that I get to see up close and personal of people who are, you know, 65 year old ex-baseball players really going, I don't know what this is, but I guess these are my pronouns and you're all cool. (laughs) Isn't that something? It's really neat. Yeah. Um, so that's one game. Um, you specified non-Baker games though, and that's hard. I'm a big fan of Treehouse Dreams, um, which is uh, Drew Henderson. Um, what other games have we been playing? Oh, we just we we're, we're playing um, the Space Junk game.
0: Oh, Daniel Solis's, Daniel uh, Solis's board game. Junk game is the name of it.
2: Yeah. Let's say that in a way that isn't
0: super confusing. Daniel Solis's game, Junk Orbit. Okay.
1: Junk it, Orbit, okay.
0: It's a it's a tabletop board game. Like a you make the board out of cards and move your pieces it's around on it. It's really game. fun. It's really fun. It's cool.
2: We're playing Emily's game in development that is about spies. Oh,
0: my God. Our friend Emily, she is making a game. It's called The World's Problems. It's based on the BBC show Sandbaggers. I don't know if you ever watched The mm-hmm. Sandbaggers. It is straight up cold war um british spies spy drama oh, that's cool and it's uh it's real fun it has it's it, um you know it's tinker taylor's so on of the spies john mccari
1: very cool
0: it has it's yeah. hooked right in my heart oh, and yeah. guts yeah i love that game
2: and and Elliot's too
1: very very cool So what's next? Um, So what can people that are going to get more uh, from you guys, is there anything um, on the horizon?
2: Yeah. We just finished the text for Under Hollow Hills, um, which is the game that we've been working on for a while in which you play members of a traveling fairy circus performing in the mortal world and in the fairy realms. Um, And I am really excited about it. We
0: just finished it. We just finished the text tex- tex- to book design next. Yeah. Which is very cool. Um, yeah. We did a Kickstarter for it a couple of years ago, and now it's going to finally come up.
2: Yeah. I mean, the pandemic threw a, a year long wrench, you know, 2020. It's just like, <laughs> so.
0: In our defense, we are not yet a year behind. Yeah. Not yet a year late. Not yet. Not <laughs> yet.
2: I mean, time works differently in Fairyland. I know it. But, um, so there's that. Uh, Elliot. <laughs> Is our, our middle child, Elliot Baker, has a Zine Quest zine out now um, for Burned Over, which is sort of what's next for Apocalypse World. Um, and uh, in a way.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the, the 2.5 of, yeah, of Apocalypse World. Yeah, of Apocalypse World. Nice. Um, in, so I think I'm going to tell a little bit the story so yeah. that. So um, uh, our kids.
2: We have three kids. They're twenty. They're twenty-four, almost twenty-one, and fifteen.
0: And so. um, when the older kids got old enough, they played Apocalypse World. And the younger kid grew up hearing stories about their Apocalypse World campaign, and would come, you know, at, at twelve and thirteen, and say, "Can we play Apocalypse World?" And I'm like, "No, child, you can't play Apocalypse World. that's <laughs> okay, That's not. That's not appropriate."
2: Except for we were all like doing crazy things when we were. Ten.
0: <laughs> if you're gonna play Apocalypse World, I can't know about it. So that's that's, that's <laughs> the And you're 13. You're right
1: kid. <laughs> yeah, you gotta go into Daddy's shoebox under his bed.
0: Exactly. I want you learning that stuff in the streets. Um, oh my
2: god. <laughs> We've run out of shelf space for games again. I
0: know. So, uh, so I said, well, what, I mean, what would a Apocalypse World look like for a more general audience? You know, and. Uh, People like Apocalypse Earth came out in two thousand and ten, in August, and by September of two thousand and ten, um, my friend Seth Benezra wrote me and said, Hey, can I have a PG thirteen version of this? And I was like, No, actually, that's a really hard problem. Yeah. Because of yeah. how how not just sex but sexiness is is built into that game. Yep. And the world
2: um, had to change. Like one of the things is that in in 2010 you know, we were halfway through Obama's first term um, in office, and like things that we, things were different. We were about to, pra- uh, about to pass um, the Marriage Equality Act in Massachusetts. Uh, things were different. And so, digging into that, like the post apocalyptic, ah! was different. Then the last little bit of time <laughs> has happened, and we're like, can we just get some hope punk in here where maybe we can? Like, <laughs> and
0: not
1: blow up the capital.
2: <laughs> right, thank you. Um, among other things, so, um,
0: and so burned, yeah. over, burned over is that PG 13 apocalypse world. Nice, people have been asking for for 10 years, you know?
2: but I think it's important that it's not like a oh for kids, it's it's a different take. One of the ways right. that I look at it and I, I've talked about it is that you know, apocalypse world is when the apocalypse has happened, and there's tons of. Maybe lots of people left. Maybe everybody's left. But yep. you players are the ones who have any vision to make something of this. And Burned Over is a different thing. Like, the world is kind of on fire right now. What are you going to do? You know, it's not. It doesn't feel, to me, the same sort of, like, dragging things out of the ashes. And with Burned Over, it feels to me like you're more on a, a pinnacle of, like...
1: You can still put the fire out.
2: There's there's still a chance. Yeah. You know, and it's a hopeful chance. Yeah. It's like what if we find a way to thread the needle through this instead? Which I think is different. That's it. Yeah.
1: That's great. I cannot thank the two of you enough. This was absolutely phenomenal. I feel, um, I feel like I've caught up on 20 years of game development in <laughs> just a short two hours, which makes me very happy and uh, far more informed for a lot of the interviews that I have coming. Um, for those out there that are listening that want to keep track of what's coming from you guys, that want to pick up Apocalypse World, what are the best ways for them to do that?
0: Um, uh is pretty current. Follow us on Twitter. Follow
2: the Patreon,
0: um, the uh, uh Patreon yeah. is the way to. And that's, sure I think that's just patreon.com slash mm-hmm. um, If you want to, if you want to back me on Patreon,
1: yeah, and we'll have all of those Back-ups. stuff. That we'll have
0: like we all we all publish to that Patreon.
1: Perfect. And what I'll do is I'll put all of that in the show notes, um, so the people listening can can quickly grab it. Um, and we'll have to come up with an excuse to steal some more time for me and have you come on again. Yeah, anytime. Really cool. Anytime.
2: And like you know, DM me and say, so Meg, what the is with baseball, with baseball. What, what team should I, I'm like, talk to me. I
1: love talking to people. Oh, that's fantastic. And for those of you that stayed around to the end to listen, thanks a lot and take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. Yeah, without without question so uh, guys the insider uh, try that again Whoa, that was terrible guys we had a terrible time and I spelled, <laughs> I, spelled I spelled apocalypse wrong. I just saw that.
2: I'm sorry that we're gonna give you so much editing
1: work. Well I, it's just I, I was i I just try to draw it out of you guys. You won't even talk to me. <laughs> this makes I, you don't know how happy I am right now. I love it when, oh, when we, I have guests that just dive right in and um one of the things that I sometimes will catch guests doing is they, they feel like they have to stick to the stick to the script, right? And mm. I'm like no. that's that's my job. I'm the host. You guys talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about and when it' It's dumb and boring, I'll bring it back. That's my job. So I don't have to do I, that with you guys. So it makes me I appreciate happy.
2: the GM ship there because it's also <laughs> like you're also doing the thing of like asking what you're interested
1: in. Yep. Right? Yeah. it's
2: like, oh that's interesting. Tell me about that bit. Yeah. They Pulling you it threads,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. um, So the idea for this next segment and we'll see what happens with it, but I was trying to try to get a sense of before apocalypse world existed. Right. Um, And what did you guys put out? What did you make? What did you, you know, what, what was consumed by others and then, and then maybe look back on it a little bit. That's my thought process here. Um, Let's see where it goes. Yeah. Great. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over, and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to Patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.